How do Christians respond to the collapse of civilization? What would you do if you heard that this afternoon the kingdom's great capital, London, had been invaded and occupied by a foreign army with many thousands killed? How would you react to pictures on your television screen of the ruined city in flames, myriads of refugees fleeing the carnage? We probably can't even imagine it. However, believers and unbelievers, Christians and pagans alike, had to face a disaster of that magnitude, even greater magnitude, back in the early 5th century. At that time, the Roman Empire was the dominant world power. And at least officially and nominally, the empire had embraced Christianity as its public faith. The cultural and emotional capital of the empire was the city of Rome, founded, according to tradition, in 753 BC. Rome had celebrated its 1,000th anniversary in 247 AD. On that occasion, Christians had made themselves deeply unpopular by boycotting the celebrations. Rome was still pagan, and the anniversary festivities were in honour of the pagan gods, and Christians would rather die than worship those gods. And die they did. Three years after Rome's thousandth anniversary, when Christians had brought such popular contempt on themselves, the Emperor Decius launched the first ever full-scale, universal, empire-wide and very bloody persecution of the church. 163 years later, Rome was a Christian city, although there were still defenders of the old pagan order within her walls. Now, by this time, Rome had lost its role as the political capital city of the empire. Uh, that exalted position now belonged to Constantinople in the east. But despite Constantinople having become the political capital where the emperors held court, Rome still had all the aura, all the magic and charisma of being the mother city from which the whole great empire had sprung her sheer legendary status as the eternal city was not in question. But in the year of our Lord 410, the unthinkable happened. Rome fell. She fell to an army of German barbarians, the Visigoths, under their tribal chieftain Alaric. Already in 408 and 409, Alaric had put Rome under siege, reducing the population to starvation and cannibalism. In 410, he took the city by storm. The eternal city, the mother of all cities, had fallen. The shockwaves made people throughout the empire sick with horror. In Bethlehem, the great Christian scholar Jerome wrote, My voice is choked and sobs break my utterance as I dictate this letter. The city that has conquered the whole world is itself conquered. One of the refugees, the Christian moralist Pelagius, wrote, Rome, the mistress of the world, shivered and was crushed with fear at the sound of the blaring trumpets and the howling of the Goths. Where then was the aristocracy? Where were the certain and distinct ranks of social class? Everyone was mingled together and shaken with fear. Every household had its grief and an all-pervading terror gripped us. Slave and aristocrat were on the same level. The same spectre of death stalked before us all. 
Well, how did the empire respond in mind and heart to this catastrophe? Two chief responses were on offer. On the one hand, the hard core of pagan intellectuals interpreted the fall of Rome as the ultimate proof of the corruption that Christianity had brought to the empire. Such things had never happened in the glory days of Rome when she worshipped the old gods and practiced the old Roman lifestyle. Rome's fall was a judgment in a twofold sense. The gods were punishing her for her acceptance of the absurd superstition of Christianity, and Rome was passing judgment on herself in that she could no longer breed the invincible warriors of old, having been turned soft and effeminate by Christianity with its unmanly spirit of otherworldliness, pie in the sky when you die, making people indifferent to the present life and the active worldly virtues. So ran the pagan response. What about the Christian response? Well, one powerful tendency among Christians was to respond in the way summed up by the Spanish presbyter Orosius. Ever since the conversion to Christianity of Constantine, first of the Christian emperors in the early 4th century, many Christians had taken a very positive, almost sacred view of Rome. God is the sovereign lord of history. Therefore, God had given to Rome its world dominion. And it was no accident that at the same time, God had sent his son, Jesus Christ, into the world. Clearly, Rome and Christianity were intended by God to harmonize with each other. The conversion of the emperor meant that Christ had adopted and sanctified the empire. Now, Erosius continued that whole tradition in his book, History Against the Pagans. Despite the fall of Rome, God, Erosius assured his readers, was still on Rome's side. He had caused all human history to come to its ultimate form in the Roman Empire, which served Christ's purposes. The sack of Rome by the Visigoths was a temporary blip, which even as Erosius wrote, was being rectified by Rome's armies. There had been catastrophes in the days of pagan Rome, but Rome had always recovered. She would recover again, much more so, now that she was a Christian empire under the banner of the cross. Under the Christian emperors, God's kingdom would be established on earth. Christianity promised not only eternal joy in heaven, but peace and prosperity here and now through a Christianized society and ultimately a Christianized world order. Well, that was the drift of Orosius's apologia. But there was another Christian voice, more profound uh, than that of Orosius, teaching a very different interpretation of Rome's fall. And this was the voice of Augustine, Saint Augustine, as he's often called, of course. Born in 354, died 430. Augustine was the bishop, or as we'd say, the pastor, of the North African church of Hippo Regius, the second most important city after Carthage in North Africa. Uh, it would be in present-day Algeria. If any single person could be awarded a rosette as the most influential theologian who has ever lived, the rosette would have to go to Augustine. The whole shape of Western European theology and spirituality was largely determined by the life and work of Augustine. 
The Protestant Reformation in the 16th century was in many ways a rediscovery and reaffirmation of Augustine as the great interpreter of biblical theology. Martin Luther and John Calvin were both drenched in Augustine. And Calvin once said he would be happy to confess his faith purely in the words of Augustine. Now, in addition to his massive stature as an intellectual giant, a maker of history, Augustine is also the personality of the ancient Roman world to whom we have the closest and most intimate access. This is through his autobiography, The Confessions. Even those who have disagreed with Augustine's theology have almost always been entranced by his autobiography and found in its pages the self-portrait of a fascinating, deep-thinking, eloquent, spiritually-minded and very attractive man. Ever since it was written, Augustine's Confessions has enjoyed a secure status in world literature. The centuries seem to fade away, and we find ourselves not only in the presence of Augustine, but in the presence of Augustine's God, as we eavesdrop on the story of his uh, spiritual pilgrimage. Just to give one example, the first great figure of the Renaissance, the 14th century poet Francesco Petrarch, never went anywhere without his copy of the Confessions. A thousand years after Augustine's death, the Italian Petrarch discovered a soulmate in the African Augustine, having experienced a similar conversion to Christ after wasting his youth in sexual immorality, as Augustine had done. Well, what was Augustine's response, then, to the fall of Rome? It's found in the longest work he ever wrote, an epic entitled City of God. Divided into 22 books, the first three appeared in the year 413, three years after the sack of Rome. The last four books appeared in 425. Augustine relates the genesis of his masterpiece as follows. At this time, Rome was overwhelmed in disaster after its capture by the Goths under their king Alaric. Those whom we usually call pagans, who worship the multitude of false gods, tried to lay the blame for this disaster on the Christian faith and began to blaspheme the true God more fiercely and bitterly than before. This set me on fire with zeal for the house of God, and I began to write City of God to refute their blasphemies and falsehood. Now, the first ten books of City of God are basically a polemic against pagan religion. The last twelve books unfold the theme of the title, and Augustine outlines the contents of these 12 books like this. The first four describe the birth of the two cities, the city of God and the city of this world. The second four continue their story, and the third four depict their final destiny. Well, let's try then to grasp Augustine's philosophy of the city of God. In order to arrive at a truly Christian response to the fall of Rome, Augustine says that we must step back from the immediate historical event to look at the broad sweep of history. What is history all about? How can we understand any event in history if we don't understand what history itself is? So what is history? 
It is, says Augustine, a tale of two cities, two cities in conflict. If we do not grasp that, we won't understand the driving force behind human history. And if we don't understand what is driving history, we won't be able to have any appreciation of the real significance of anything in history. And so Augustine begins to set forth his tale of two cities as the overarching theme of human history. By city, of course, Augustine doesn't mean a set of buildings within walls. He's using the word city in a social, not an architectural sense. Two communities, two societies. In a physical, biological sense, the human race is one family, descended from one set of parents, Adam and Eve. But in a moral and spiritual sense, mankind is and always has been divided into two families and always will be until the end of time. To quote Augustine, we divide the human race into two branches, the one consisting of those who live according to man, the other of those who live according to God. And these we also mystically call the two cities, or the two communities of human beings, of which the one is predestined to reign eternally with God, and the other to suffer eternal punishment with the devil. For Augustine then, despite all human differences of sex, class, nationality, age, and natural endowments, there are ultimately only two kinds of human being. On the one hand, there are the citizens of God's city, or the heavenly city. This community, says Augustine, is symbolized in the Bible by Jerusalem, where in Old Testament times, God chose to dwell in the Ark of the Covenant, which lay at the center of the Jerusalem temple. On the other hand, there are the citizens of the other city. Now, Augustine gives various names to the other city, usually the city of the world, but also the earthly city, the city of man, and sometimes the city of the devil. This city, Augustine says, is symbolized in the Bible by Babylon, the capital city of the great pagan empire, uh, which in Old Testament times destroyed Jerusalem and took the Jews into exile and captivity. So then, spiritually speaking, to one or other of these cities, every single one of us belongs. Our destiny is determined by our citizenship. And whether we like it or not, there are only two cities of which we can be citizens, the city of God and the city of the world. There is no third option, and there is no possibility of neutrality. What is it then, in Augustine's view, that defines these two communities and distinguishes them from each other? What's the moral and spiritual boundary between them? Well, in a single word, love. The two communities love different things. To quote Augustine, Accordingly, two cities have been formed by two loves. The earthly city by the love of self even to the point of despising God. The heavenly city, by the love of God, even to the point of despising self. To be brief, the first city glories in itself, the second glories in the Lord. For the one seeks glory from men, but the greatest glory of the other is God, 
the witness of conscience. The one city lifts up its head in its own glory. The other city says to its God, you are my glory and the lifter up of my head. In the one city, the princes and nations it subdues are ruled by the love of power. In the other city, princes and subjects serve one another in love, the subjects obeying while the princes are concerned for the welfare of all. The one city delights in its own strength, represented in the persons of its rulers. The other city says to its God, I will love you, O Lord, my strength. And therefore the wise men of the one city, living according to man, have sought the advantage of their own bodies or souls or both. But in the other city, there is no human wisdom, but only godliness, which offers proper worship to the true God and looks for its reward in the society of the saints, of holy angels as well as holy men, so that God may be all in all. For Augustine, then, the inner meaning of human history is this tale of two cities, two communities, the earthly Babylon and the heavenly Jerusalem. One of them rooted and grounded in the love of self and the other in the love of God. The citizens of the earthly city trust in man, seek human glory and exploit their neighbor through the love of power. The citizens of God's city trust in God, seek the glory of God and serve their neighbor unselfishly. Pride is the characteristic of the earthly city. Humility is the distinguishing feature of the heavenly city. For pride is the source of rebellion against God, whereas humility is the mother of obedience. The earthly city may even give a place to God in its system, but only on its own earthly terms. In Augustine's words, the good make use of the world in order that they may enjoy God. The wicked, on the contrary, would make use even of God in order that they may enjoy the world. So the existence, the conflict, and the ultimate destiny of these two cities constitutes the meaning of history. Understand this, Augustine is saying, and you have understood history. Fail to grasp this, and you cannot truly understand anything. Now, what is the origin of the two cities? Why are there two cities? Where do they come from? How did they come into existence? According to Augustine, both cities originated ultimately beyond planet Earth, in the heavens. Augustine points us to gaze upon the unseen, the invisible world of the angels. God, in the beginning, created one society of angels who were all at first good. But a division took place in the angelic ranks. Some of the angels remained good and obeyed God. Others, led by Lucifer, rebelled and became evil. And so there, if you like, is the original origin of the two cities. The city of God, the heavenly Jerusalem, has its origin in the holy angels. The rebellion of the unholy angels was the origin of the other city, the wicked Babylon. And this explains why Augustine can call that city the city of the devil. Satan is the prince of the anti-God city. However, to be meaningful to us, this division in the heavens has to impinge on our earthly existence. So how did this conflict among angels 
come to reproduce itself on the earth? Well, at one level, the answer is obvious. Satan, the leader of the fallen angels, the prince of the wicked Babylon, seduced our mother Eve, and through her, our father Adam, into following him. So, for the human race, the fall of man in the Garden of Eden is the historical origin of the earthly city. Man preferred the love of self to the love of God. He chose to pursue his own autonomous will in defiance of the Creator's holy will. In so doing, man became the imitator and the slave of Satan. The spirit of Babylon took possession of the human heart. Augustine says, When therefore man lives by the standard of man, not by the standard of God, he is like the devil. For even an angel, if he was to abide in the truth and speak God's truth and not his own lie, had to live not by the standard of an angel, but only by the standard of God. When then a man lives by the standard of the truth, he lives not by his own standard, but by God's standard. For Christ, who is God, said, I am the truth. But when man lives by his own standard, that is, by the standard of man, not the standard of God, assuredly he lives by the standard of a lie. And in so doing, man becomes an imitator and a subject of the devil, who is the father of lies. But if the city of the world, the city of man, governed by self-love, was born on earth in this rebellion of Adam and Eve, how then could the heavenly city ever come to be born in the midst of such a fallen and rebellious humanity? How can the clean be born of the unclean? After all, the human race wasn't initially divided into two camps, one obedient, the other rebellious. The whole race rebelled in its head, Adam. When he fell, humanity fell, human nature fell. So unlike what happened among the angels, the human race in its entirety, as summed up in the person of Adam, became one universal mass of sin and ruin. From this all-embracing rebellion of Adam and his family, how could the city of God ever come into being? Augustine's answer is that the city of God had its origin among fallen mankind by a new recreative act of God. God's grace, his undeserved saving mercy, reached into the depths of apostate humanity with the gift of new birth, regeneration by the Holy Spirit. Divine grace takes hold of those who are born into the earthly city and causes them to be spiritually reborn as members of the heavenly city. Now, Scripture is silent on the ultimate destiny of Adam and Eve. The first human being, clearly set before us in the Bible as a citizen of God's city by spiritual rebirth, is Abel, the second son of Adam and Eve. So as far as Scripture is concerned, Abel is the founding father of the city of God. And that's why he stands at the head of the roll call of the heroes of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. Now, Augustine sees profound significance in the story of the life and death of Abel. For a start, Augustine points out that Abel was the second, not the first, of Adam's sons. Cain was the firstborn, and Cain was wicked, the first murderer. In the fact that Cain was born first, then Abel, 
Augustine perceives a deep spiritual truth. For this fallen human race, Cain always precedes Abel. That is, sinful birth always comes first, then spiritual rebirth. The earthly city, then the city of God. We're conceived and born in sin, then born again by grace. No one therefore enters the city of God by a spiritual birth who's not first been a member of the city of man by a fleshly birth. Let's hear Augustine on this. Of these two first parents of the human race then, Cain was the firstborn and he belonged to the city of men. After him was born Abel who belonged to the city of God. In the individual, the truth of the apostle's statement is discerned. That is not first which is spiritual, but that which is natural, and afterward that which is spiritual. From this it comes to pass that each human being, derived from a condemned race, is first of all born of Adam, evil and fleshly, and only afterwards becomes good and spiritual when he's grafted into Christ by regeneration. So it was in the human race as a whole. When these two cities began to run their course by a series of deaths and births, the citizens of this world, the citizen of this world, was the firstborn, and after him, the stranger in this world, the citizen of the city of God, predestined by grace, elected by grace, by grace a stranger below, and by grace a citizen above. Accordingly, it's recorded of Cain that he built a city, but Abel, being a pilgrim, built none, for the city of the saints is above, although here below it begets citizens in whom it finds a pilgrim dwelling until the time of its reign arrives. So, in other words, the tale of the two cities is played out at the very dawn of human history in the persons of Cain and Abel. Not only is Cain born first, before Abel, that is, spiritually speaking, not only do fleshly birth and original sin precede divine grace and regeneration, but, furthermore, in Cain and Abel, we see the inevitable conflict between the two cities. It isn't only a tale of two cities, but two cities at war. Cain hated and murdered righteous Abel. In Augustine's words, Cain was followed by Abel, whom the elder brother slew. Abel was the first to show, by a kind of foreshadowing of the pilgrim city of God, what iniquitous persecutions that city would suffer at the hands of wicked and earth-born men who love their earthly origin and delight in the earthly happiness of their earthly city. So, revealed in Adam's first and second-born sons, we see the spiritual principle of the warfare between the two cities, of which Cain and Abel are the father figures. This Cain and Abel theme, according to Augustine, symbolizing the two cities and their conflict, is a recurring pattern in the Old Testament. We see it also in the relationship between Esau and Jacob, between Jacob's sons and Joseph, between Saul and David. In each case, the elder party is of the earthly city, the younger is of God's city. And in each case, the elder persecutes the younger, seeking his life. Esau wanted to kill Jacob. Jacob's other sons almost murdered Joseph and then sold him into slavery 
Saul tried to kill David. So the conflict between the flesh and the spirit is set forth in Scripture as a conflict between the old and the new. The old apostate humanity in Adam, the new obedient humanity in Christ, the second Adam. However, says Augustine, we also see in these Old Testament examples a sign of the ultimate triumph of God's city over the earthly city. Because Jacob becomes greater than Esau, Joseph is exalted as ruler over his brothers, and David succeeds to the crown of defeated Saul. So too, despite bitter opposition and persecution from the old earthly city, the new city of God will stand forth victorious at the end of time, as the earthly city goes down to eternal destruction. Christ, the prince of the new Jerusalem, will triumph over Satan, the prince of old Babylon. Well now, where are these two cities or communities to be found? Are they visible entities? Can we point to them and say, here is the city of God and here is the city of the world? Could we say, for example, the Roman Empire is the earthly city and the church is the city of God? Well, no. According to Augustine, the two cities are intermingled. He says, in truth, these two cities are entangled together in this world and intermixed until the last judgment brings about their separation. In other words, the two communities, although morally and spiritually quite distinct, are not physically separated. Augustine picks up here on one of the themes in uh, Jesus' teaching from the parable of the wheat and the tares, which uh, Jesus says grow together in the same field and are separated only in the harvest at the end of time. Like the wheat and tares growing together in the same field, the citizens of the two cities find themselves mingled and mixed together within the same earthly structures of life. The same family, the same workplace, the same political community. Citizens of the earthly city and of the heavenly city can both be citizens of the Roman Empire. However, surely, we might say, the citizens of God's city can separate themselves, at least to this extent, that they form themselves into churches, and in the church, at least, we will have a pure manifestation of the city of God. No, says Augustine. The church as a visible community is made up of those who outwardly and visibly profess Jesus Christ. But a person may make such a profession outwardly while being alienated from Christ in his heart. Therefore, the visible church is also a mixed community. It too is wheat and tares. And so, Augustine says, as long as she is a stranger in the world, the city of God has in her communion and bound to her by the sacraments some who shall not eternally dwell in the condition of the saints. Of these, some are not now recognized. In other words, those who successfully play act at being Christians. Others declare themselves and do not hesitate to make common cause with our enemies in murmuring against God whose sacramental sign, baptism, they wear. These people you may today see thronging the churches with us 
tomorrow, crowding the theatres with the godless. So for Augustine, there is no pure, visible manifestation of the city of God on earth. God's city cannot be directly equated with the visible church, because the visible church is a mixed body of true and false, genuine and counterfeit, wheat and tares. By contrast, the city of God is made up only of true, twice-born believers joined in community with the good angels. For we and they together, says Augustine, are the one city of God, to which it is said in the psalm, glorious things are spoken of you, O city of God. The human part dwells as a pilgrim here below, the angelic part gives help from above. But this city is visible only to God. We cannot see the angelic part, and as for the human part, all we can see is a person's profession of faith, which may or may not be authentic. We cannot look into that person's heart. What we see is the visible institutional church, within which the city of God is nurtured by the word of God and the sacraments, but which cannot be identified with the heavenly city. Only at the last judgment will Christ make a clear, visible separation between the wheat and the tares, the sheep and the goats. Augustine was even sceptical about the degree to which the individual person could enjoy final certainty about which city he or she belonged to, owing to the human heart's limitless capacity for self-deception. And then there's another deeper reason in Augustine's thinking why the city of God is ultimately invisible to human sight. There are, Augustine declares, people who in God's eternal purpose belong to his city, but who are at the moment living in the earthly city. Augustine is referring to non-Christians who will one day be converted and become Christians and persevere to the end. From the viewpoint of eternity, God sees these people in accordance with what they will finally be. In the mystery of predestination, they are elect and are destined to become citizens of the heavenly city. But prior to their conversion, they live as citizens of the earthly city, governed by the love of self. And here, says Augustine, is another reason why we can't make a simplistic identification between the city of God and the visible institutional church. There are those now outside the church who really and ultimately belong to her, just as there are those inside the church who do not really and ultimately belong to her. So while the city of God is partially reflected in the visible church, we can't simply equate the two. Now, let's see how Augustine applies his philosophy of the two cities to the fall of Rome. What is Rome? An earthly city. Not the earthly city, because that embraces the whole of unsaved, unregenerate humanity. But Rome is a manifestation of the earthly city. She incarnates its spirit. Augustine paints a grim parallel between the city of Rome and the first ever human city. According to Genesis 4, the builder of the first human city, in the architectural sense, was none other than Cain, the founding father of the earthly city in the spiritual sense, the man who murdered his younger brother Abel, 
who was the founding father of the heavenly city. So the first human city was erected by a man who shed the blood of his brother. It was built on the crime of fratricide. And so, says Augustine, was Rome, according to its own official mythology. Who does Rome say founded Rome? Romulus. And what was Romulus? He was another Cain. Cain murdered his brother Abel. Romulus murdered his brother Remus. To quote Augustine, Thus, the founder of the earthly city, Cain, was a fratricide. Overcome with envy, he slew slew his own brother Abel, a citizen of the eternal city, and a pilgrim on earth. So, we cannot be surprised that this first specimen, or as the Greeks say, archetype of crime, should long afterwards find a corresponding crime at the foundation of that city, Rome, which was destined to reign over so many nations and be the head of this earthly city of which we speak. For of that city also, as one of their poets has mentioned, the first walls were stained with a brother's blood. Or as Roman history records, Remus was slain by his brother Romulus. Rome was human all too human in its origin. It revealed itself from the very beginning as a community governed by the spirit of the earthly city, the spirit of Cain. Now, Augustine then draws a rather profound conclusion. Cain slew Abel because Abel was of the heavenly city and Cain was of the earthly city. But Romulus and Remus were both of the earthly city. Neither of those brothers loved the true God or trusted him or sought his glory, and yet one killed the other. So by its very nature, the earthly city is divided Divided not only against the heavenly city, but even against itself. This is inevitable because the citizens of the earthly city are governed by self-love. And all you need is just two people governed by self-love, and instantly you have the potential for conflict, each seeking his own advantage. The city of the world is therefore corrupted at its very core by inner division. It is inherently unstable. Augustine says, the quarrel between Romulus and Remus shows how the earthly city is divided against itself. That which fell out between Cain and Abel illustrated the hatred that subsists between the two cities, that of God and that of men. The wicked war with the wicked, the good also war with the wicked. And a kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. The earthly city lacks any inner principle of unity. The only unity it understands is a unity based on force. That's why world history is such a dismal story of nation at war with nation, civil wars within nations, the rise and fall of brutal empires. Such will be the tragic character of life on earth until Christ returns and creates a new heaven and a new earth. Now from this broad panorama perspective, Augustine is then able to respond to the pagan interpretation of the fall of Rome. The pagan intellectuals blame the catastrophe on Christianity. The gods have deserted Rome, and Rome's own virtue has been degraded by effeminate Christians who prefer praying to fighting. Well, says Augustine, this is both 
simply false and falsely simplistic. For a start, you cannot attribute Rome's fall to the withdrawal of the favour of the gods because these so-called gods have no actual existence. Further, there have been many other catastrophes in Rome's history. What about the devastating civil wars that ravaged the entire empire in the first century BC and destroyed Rome's ancient republican form of government, giving birth to the new monarchy under Augustus, first of the emperors? Rome, by its very nature, is a city of man. There is nothing stable, nothing enduring about it. Empires come and empires go. Rome's empire is no different in principle. It's part of the old, dying city of man. Indeed, Rome's own history shows all too clearly which city she belonged to, if only these pagan intellectuals had eyes to see. Rome sought its own glory, not the glory of God. Her empire wasn't based on divine justice, but on the human lust for power. Indeed, Augustine pronounces pessimistically, all the kingdoms of this world are nothing but vast conspiracies of robbers. What are the greatest earthly rulers? What was Alexander the Great? What Alexander did on a grand scale by his wars and conquests was ultimately no different from what a pirate does in a single ship. When earthly cities and kingdoms fall, then their punishment is just. There is only one enduring city, the city of God. And she isn't a physical or a political entity, but a spiritual entity, dwelling not in the might of proud armies, but in the hearts of humble believers. What about the Christian response to Rome's fall? Obviously, Augustine's perspective had no room for the naive identification that many Christians, like Orosius, had made between the city of God and the city of Rome. The true city of God cannot be identified with any earthly kingdom. If Rome's fall is permanent, Christians must not ultimately be disturbed, said Augustine. We don't pin our hopes on any earthly city. We know how unstable and transient even the best earthly cities are. Incomparably more glorious than Rome, says Augustine, is that heavenly city in which, instead of victory, you have truth. Instead of dignity, holiness. Instead of peace, blessedness. Instead of life, eternity. Rome only promised the good things of this life, all of which are perishable. The city of God promises imperishable blessings. Since then, says Augustine, the supreme good of the city of God is perfect and eternal peace, not such as mortals pass into and out of by birth and death, but the peace of freedom from all evil in which the immortals ever abide. Who can deny that this future life is most blessed? Who can deny that in comparison with it, this life which we now live is most wretched, even if it is filled with all blessings of body and soul and external things? And yet, if anyone uses this life with a reference to that other life, which he ardently loves and confidently hopes for, he may well be called blessed even now, though not in reality so much as in hope. Augustine directs us to look to the end of history, 
when the tale of the two cities is over and only one city remains, the victorious and unshakable city of God. All who put their trust in earthly cities are doomed to frustration and disappointment. Augustine, I think, would have approved of the sentiments of Martin Luther's hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And though they take our life, goods, honour, children, wife, yet is their profit small. These things shall vanish all. The city of God remaineth. Augustine rejects as a fantasy any idea that Christianity will ever bring peace and prosperity on earth. That's not because Augustine doubts the relevance of the Bible to secular affairs. The Bible is a fountain of wisdom for the whole of man's life. Unfortunately, the human mind, even in Christians, is a fountain of never-ending folly and sinful stupidity. We must have an ice-cold realism in our expectations of what fallen and foolish human beings can achieve. Even the best and wisest Christians are still corrupted by sin and capable of much that is evil and destructive. The quest for an earthly utopia is therefore the pursuit of a mirage destined to failure. Heaven is in heaven and not on earth. So Augustine has no illusions about the society, about society or the world ever being truly Christianized. He sees a grim foreshadowing of this in the Old Testament. In the two branches of Adam's family, the one descended from ungodly Cain and the other from Seth. After Adam, Augustine says, the generations diverge. The one branch deriving from Cain, the other from him whom Adam begot in the place of Abel, slain by his brother, and whom Adam called Seth, saying as it is written, for God has raised me up another son for Abel whom Cain slew. So there are two lines of descent, one from Cain, the other from Seth, and in their separate listings they represent the two cities. The one, the heavenly city, which dwells as a pilgrim on earth, the other, the earthly city, which gapes after earthly joys and grovels in them as if they were the only joys. What did he intend by enumerating the generations from Cain? And to what end did he mean to trace them? We reply, to the flood by which the whole stock of the earthly city was destroyed, but was then replenished by the sons of Noah. For the earthly city and community of men who live after the flesh will never fail until the end of this world, of which our Lord says, the children of this world generate and are generated. But the city of God is on pilgrimage in this world and is brought by regeneration to the next world. Now, to put that into a more accessible form, what Augustine is saying is this, that just as Cain's offspring persisted up to the very end of the ancient world, and were purged away only by the judgment of the flood, so the earthly city, which they embodied, will persist until the end of this present world, and will be purged away only by final judgment, when the king of the heavenly city returns in glory. Until then, Jerusalem always has to contend with Babylon during the entire time of its pilgrimage here on earth. And here, too, was Augustine's response to the sufferings that Rome's fall brought on Christians. In this present life, 
The citizens of God's city are inextricably mingled with the citizens of the earthly city, and they participate in its fortunes. If Rome falls, the Christians of Rome will share the calamity and the affliction. They too will be subject to violence, starvation, loss of property, destitution, death itself. Augustine, therefore, does not rejoice in Rome's fall, as some foolish Christians did. How can we rejoice in an event that brings suffering on our Christian brothers and sisters? But while the believer will not rejoice in Rome's fall, he will not grieve over much either. Why not? Because his roots were not planted in the earthly city in any case. It is not his home. He knows that he belongs to another city, a city that has eternal foundations, whose maker and builder is God. The pagan may feel that the collapse of Rome is the end of everything, an unmitigated catastrophe. That's because his hopes and dreams were limited by the horizon of the earthly city. Not so the Christian. His mind and heart are set on the heavenly city. In Augustine's words, the reward of the saints is far different. Even here, they endure reproaches for that city of God which is hateful to the lovers of this world. God's city is eternal. There none are born, for none die. There is true and full felicity, not a goddess, but a gift of God. From there, we receive the pledge of faith, in that we sigh for her beauty while on our pilgrimage. There the sun does not rise on the good and the evil, but the sun of righteousness spreads his light on the good alone. There the public treasury needs no great industry for its enrichment at the cost of private poverty, for there the common treasury is truth. And therefore, it was not only for the sake of recompensing the citizens of Rome that her empire and glory had been so notably extended. It was also in order that the citizens of the eternal city during their pilgrimage here, might diligently and soberly contemplate these examples and see what a love they owe to the heavenly country on account of life eternal if the earthly country was so much loved by its citizens on account of mere human glory. In other words, if the pagan Romans could love their doomed earthly city so much How greatly should Christians love their eternal heavenly city? If patriotic Romans laboured and sacrificed so much for the perishable glory of Rome, how much more should that spur us on as Christians to labour and sacrifice for the imperishable glory of our celestial Jerusalem? But in saying all this, Has Augustine conceded the claim of the pagan intellectuals that Christianity makes people unfit for earthly citizenship? Does Christian faith cause believers to become so preoccupied with heaven that they no longer care about the earthly city? No, says Augustine, no. The values pursued by the earthly city, peace and prosperity, are in fact good in themselves, as far as they go, and Christians can cooperate in the endeavour to establish these values, even though a Christian will not be driven by political utopianism, 
in this endeavour. The values of the earthly city become false and evil when they're made into the ultimate goal of human life and when they're pursued at the expense of justice. Here, the Christian must stand resolutely apart. We must insist that man's ultimate destiny lies beyond this earth, beyond this life, in God, and that this supernatural destiny will be achieved only when Christ returns at the end of human history and creates new heaven, new earth. I think Augustine's position here is well summed up by the 19th century Danish Lutheran, Soren Kierkegaard. Relate yourself relatively to the relative, absolutely to the absolute. The soul-destroying error of utopian dreamers is that they relate themselves absolutely to the relative. They make an ultimate goal out of man's earthly life and secular well-being. In so doing, they show that they love the creature more than the creator. So Augustine rejects the charge that Christianity is incompatible with good citizenship. Christians can and Christians should cooperate with the citizens of the earthly city in seeking earthly good. God has commanded us to do so. Christians, therefore, have a motive for good citizenship higher and stronger than anything the pagans can boast, namely the motive of religious obligation to the one true God. However, Christians will never confuse the relative good of the fading and fleeting city of the world with the absolute good of the everlasting city of God. Indeed, it's precisely by turning their backs on the city of God that the pagans have made such a destructive idol out of the earthly city. They neglect the higher goods of the heavenly city, says Augustine, which are secure through eternal victory and never-ending peace, and thus they covet the good things of the present life with inordinate desire, believing them to be the only desirable things, or loving them more than those things which faith reckons to be higher. The inevitable consequence is fresh misery and an increase of the wretchedness that was already there. By striving for heaven on earth, man is likely to turn earth into hell. Christianity alone enables the human person to pursue earthly goals with a sense of realism and without idolatry or injustice. And so paradoxically, according to Augustine, it's the citizens of the heavenly city who actually make the best citizens of the earthly city. Now, Augustine died uh, in the year 430, while his uh, city of Hippo Regius was under siege by the German tribal confederation of the Vandals under their king Genseric. After ravaging Spain, the Vandals passed across the Straits of Gibraltar into Roman North Africa in the summer of 429. Imperial civilization simply collapsed. The Orthodox Christian population either fled in a swelling tide of refugees or else were massacred, ethnically cleansed by the invaders. Bishops deserted their flocks and fled. One of them wrote to Augustine, 
If we stay by our churches, I just cannot see how we can be of any use to ourselves or to our people. We would only stay to witness before our very eyes men struck down, women raped, churches going up in flames, and we would be tortured to death for wealth we do not possess. Augustine was made of sterner stuff. He would not desert his people. And so in June 430, Augustine remained at his post in Hippo, as the fortified city was surrounded by the Vandal army. Ironically, the siege coincided with Augustine's last illness. While Vandals tried to starve the city into submission, the Bishop of Hippo lay on his deathbed, constantly reading the penitential psalms and weeping over his sins. He died on August the 28th, 430, and was buried the same day. A year later, Roman imperial forces managed to evacuate the surviving population of Hippo, and the abandoned town was then partly burnt by the Vandals. Augustine had lived just long enough to witness the destruction of Roman civilization in the West. He lamented the suffering, but his heart was more strongly fortified than the city of Hippo Regius by his faith and hope in the city that cannot be shaken. It seems fitting uh, that we should conclude in that light with one of Augustine's prayers. I know, O Lord, and humbly acknowledge that I am an object altogether unworthy of your love, but I am sure that you are an object altogether worthy of mine. I am not good enough to serve you, but you have a right to the best service I can pay. Impart to me some of your excellence, and that will supply my own lack of worth. Help me to cease from sin according to your will, so that I may be capable of serving you according to my duty. Enable me so to guard and govern myself, and so to begin and finish my course, that when the race of life has been run, I may sleep in peace and rest in you. Be with me to the end, so that my sleep may be true rest, my rest perfect security, and my security a blessed eternity. Amen. Nick has agreed to take questions. Uh, the questions can be basic and simple, if you wish. And if there are, I'll ask the front row on that. Yes, Chris. As we um, perhaps watch the slow and painful destruction of our own civilization, do you find yourself reminiscing on the city of God and thinking there are lessons to learn for us? As we witness the slow, painful death of our own civilization, are there lessons to be learned for us from the city of God? Is that the question? Meaning Augustine's book, City of God. Yes. Well, I guess, I mean, everything I said provides food for thought. Um, maybe one could sort of add that, um, I mean, Augustine obviously didn't think we could build Jerusalem here on earth. He didn't say that we couldn't sabotage the building of Babylon. I think we should try and do that. And particularly thinking of uh, the Christian Institute, a lot of what Augustine says about uh, the religious obligations of good citizenship 
should actually motivate us to play a part in that. I don't, I don't think he wants us to... Well, I mean, he rejects the idea that we should be so fixated on the heavenly city that it actually makes us bad citizens of the earthly city. He wants to have a different relationship there. Uh, you don't worship the earthly city, but on the other hand, you don't get this kind of passive contemplation of the heavenly city with complete apathy to your neighbour, because that violates the fundamental Christian command of love. So it's, it's finding the right synthesis, the right balance between the two things there. Um, I'm not sure I can pick out any single thing, though, because everything Augustine says here seems to me to be so, so relevant and so luminous and so helpful. If we can just absorb some of these attitudes, a lot of things ought to just click into place in terms of how we think and how we act. I think that's how I'd try and answer that. Just, just for our own understanding here, do you, do you think that if Augustine was alive today, from what he's written, that he would be actively um, campaigning against anti-Christian um, trends in society? I, I'm thinking abortion and civil partnerships and things. Do you think that's the sort of thing he would condone us doing? Can you all get the question. Good. I won't have to repeat it, though. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, obviously one isn't sure what, what Augustine would do if, if he were alive today, but, um, but in, his, in his own day, um, I seem to recollect from some of the biographies of Augustine that I've read, he, he tried to exercise a, a mitigating influence on the, uh, the Roman imperial authorities' penchant for executing people at the drop of a hat. He tried to sort of to plead for mercy. And in fact, I seem to recollect that um, one of his ecclesiastical enemies, a Donatist, that was a schism that kind of split the whole North African church in Augustine's time, uh, actually tried to assassinate Augustine. And when the authorities were going to execute him, Augustine secured clemency. Um, and by Augustine's time, in any case... All bishops were part of the civil law structure of the Roman Empire. That's something that derives from the legislation of Constantine. Constantine had, had legislated that if there was a civil law dispute, uh, it was an option for those in dispute to take their case to the local bishop for him to decide between them, and then his decision had all the force of law. So... Presumably that could have happened with Augustine. People could have come to him and asked him to settle a civil law dispute. So in that sense, he was already part of the, the, the law-making processes of his society. Um, I mean, some of the things we're having to face, of course, Augustine didn't have to face. Um, some of the, the moral issues that are facing us. But, I mean, he wouldn't have approved, obviously, of things like abortion or or gay partnerships. Um, but it, it's difficult to know exactly what he would have said and done because our cultural and social situation is so different. I mean, Augustine's living in a, a superficially Christianized society 
or he can appeal to Christian standards as being universally acknowledged, except by some of these old die-hard defenders of paganism who've basically been marginalised. Uh, and we can't do that. We're not living in that sort of context. Um, so how exactly he would have advised us to, to sabotage the building of Babylon, I'm not sure. I'm sure he would have approved them. Mike? Thank you very much for that. Uh, it was very clear. Um, but could you perhaps just go over again how it is that Cain and Abel were the founding fathers of the cities? I, I'm not sure I fully understood that point. Cain and Abel. Yeah. Augustine is saying that in the biblical account, Abel is the founding father of the city of God. He's the first of the heroes of faith in Hebrews 11. Um, Cain is the founding father on earth of the city of man because he, he, it's in fact recorded of him that he built a city. Um, and in the conflict between Cain and Abel, Augustine sees a sort of personification of the two cities. And he makes much of the fact that Cain is the firstborn, Abel the secondborn, because sin always precedes grace. Fleshly birth always precedes spiritual birth. And then he sees that pattern played out in um, Jacob and Esau, David and Saul, and so on. But the reason why he sees Abel as being the founding father is, I think, just because of the way Scripture presents Abel, particularly Hebrews 11. Would uh, Augustine have uh, been a pacifist if uh, Christians about being in the army? Because so many of the early Christians refused to serve in the army. I just wonder what his attitude was to that. Would Augustine have been no. a pacifist? That was the basic question, wasn't it? No, no Augustine wasn't a pacifist. Um, pacifism pretty much died a death in the 4th century when the Roman Empire embraced Christianity. Um, I think Athanasius was the first of the early church fathers positively to, to write in commendation of a just war. It is praiseworthy, it is lawful and praiseworthy to destroy an enemy in war. That's Athanasius. And uh, that's a generation before Augustine. So Augustine would see... Um, he would see the just and measured use of force as, in fact, an act of Christian love. Because, you know, by, by restraining the evildoer, you're stopping him from hurting people. So that's the kind of principle he would have applied. No, he, he wasn't a pacifist. No. I think pacifism kind of retreated into the monasteries after the 4th century. Um, earlier today, when you kindly did a lecture for us, I asked you a question which sort of spanned over 1,500 years of uh, Christian history, and I wonder if I could do the same again um, and ask you... <laughs> yes, ask you, you can. <laughs> You're going to anyway. I'm afraid so. Um, ask you examples of um, people who have been inspired by the book City of God 
Um, I mean, I'm looking for illustrations of, of how others have put that teaching into practice in their own age. Yeah, that's a difficult one. Um, because in many ways, for example, in the Middle Ages, I think the city of God was misunderstood. And uh, it was often taken as a blueprint for doing the very thing Augustine said couldn't be done, that you can build the city of God here on earth. Uh, the Holy Roman Emperors took it in that way, and they tried to build a secular city of God on earth. The papacy took it that way and tried to build an ecclesiastical city of God on earth. And that's why, for a thousand years, you have this conflict between popes and emperors tearing Western Europe apart. So uh, that's actually an example of how not to, uh, to make use of city of God, I suppose. Um, I'm honestly not sure about the specific inspiration that people derive from that one book as opposed to sort of Augustine's broader body of writings. Um, you're thinking in terms of sort of people being inspired in, in their concepts of politics and citizenship, right? Yeah. Um, maybe, maybe Luther, because in some ways he has a, an interesting interpretation of uh, the themes that Augustine's pursuing, because uh, Luther held to the idea of the two kingdoms, which is similar to the two cities. Um, you've, got the, you've got the kingdom of the church, or the gospel, and you've got the kingdom of the world. And uh, in the kingdom of the world, you're allowed to use force and violence to try to maintain justice and order, but you're never allowed to use compulsion of any kind in the kingdom of the church or the gospel. Um, and August, uh, sorry, Luther saw a strong role for natural law, which we were discussing earlier, as providing the moral foundations for the kingdom of the world, whereas the gospel is what reigns in the kingdom of the church. And uh, perhaps it's not accidental that I ended up quoting that hymn of Luther there, you know, uh, the city of God remaineth. So Luther's one example. But I'm a bit out of my depth here because uh, I haven't actually done a, a study of who was influenced by city of God. But I can tell you which book to read. Um, there's a very good Augustine dictionary, uh, a dictionary of Augustine's thought, um, which you'll either have in your library or you can easily get hold of. Fairly recent. It was done in the past five or ten years. Massive great thing. And uh, I can't remember who edited it, but I can find out and email that to you if you like. And if you just look up City of God in there, uh, it will very probably tell you not just about the book and its themes, but about its ongoing influence after Augustine. Because I've noticed that that's what some of the articles do on Augustine's thought and writings in that particular encyclopedia. This is a difficult one. Okay. Tracy. <laughs> um, the book is a phenomenally massive book, yes. and you've managed to condense it to an hour. Um, there's probably some big things in there that we might benefit from if we were to read it. What what else could we find in there? What did you miss out? <laughs> <laughs> Is that your question? Not quite. 
No, I thought you wouldn't agree with that either. No, I mean, there, there are things in there which one can actually skip over um, because uh, a lot of the early stuff is, is polemic against Roman pagan religion, kind of point by point, case by case, God by God, goddess by goddess, and that's not strictly relevant to us today. And there's also quite a lot in City of God about um, uh, theology outside the context of this particular theme. In other words, the two cities. That there's quite a lot of other theological material in the book, which I haven't dealt with because it's not on this particular, you know, the two cities theme. Um, so you'll find quite a lot in there on uh, Augustine's concept of grace, uh, Augustine's understanding of worship, um, Augustine's understanding of the human person. I mean, all these things are in there, but I didn't deal with them tonight because they're not germane to that specific theme. Uh, in many ways, City of God is just a treasure trove of all things theological. them tonight. Why are we talking about Augustine? Because he's not really one of us. He's not a real evangelical. <laughs> Can you Can I answer in that? part respond to that? Because I think there is a feeling around that he's not really one of us. Well, he was the single biggest influence on the Protestant reformers. Um, as I said, Luther and Calvin were both ardent disciples of Augustine, and uh, they thought he was one of them. Well, you know, that's anachronistic, of course. They considered themselves uh, disciples of Augustine. And uh, I see you've got that book, The Triumph of Grace. The author tries to answer that question in there. If John's claiming that he's not one of us, do the Catholic Church say that he's one of them? Oh, yeah. No, I didn't. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't someone said that someone said, said that, yeah. I won't embarrass her <laughs> <her> tonight. <laughs> oh, yeah, I mean, Roman Catholics claim Augustine is one of them. That's undoubtedly true. Um, and there are a good number of elements in Augustine which are more Roman Catholic than they are Protestant. I wouldn't deny that. But there are other elements which are more Protestant uh, than they are Roman Catholic. I don't, th I don't think any one group can kind of monolithically claim the whole of Augustine uh, for themselves. Um, and I, I, in these days, in the aftermath of the Second Vatican Council, I, I just think it's disingenuous for Roman Catholics to claim Augustine as being on their side because they've embraced... Uh, uh, a syncretistic inclusivism. Anyone can be saved as long as they're sincere. Even the atheist can be saved if he obeys the light of his conscience. I mean, all of that is just a million miles away from Augustine's theology of salvation.
silence column, I think. <laughs> Anyone else like to ask anything at all? Yes, Malcolm Mugridge. Malcolm Mugridge wrote a book on God's secret agents. And the first one he mentioned in that book was St. Augustine. Do you, from what you've said tonight, I get the feeling that he was for that time, but he was also for us. Is that right? Yeah, without wanting to necessarily endorse what Malcolm Mugridge said, because I haven't, I haven't read that book... Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think Augustine has a timeless value. And all you have to do to see that is just read his confessions, his spiritual autobiography. You'll, you'll just instantly find yourself in the presence of a contemporary heart speaking to heart. No more questions. Well, if not, I think you would want me to say thank you to Nick for his brilliant talk tonight and the way in which he's responded to our questions. Thanks very much indeed for coming. We hope you'll return sometime.